Hi, this is Dr. MJ coming to you from beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. This is the Women in Dentistry podcast where we feature women in dentistry making waves and leading the industry through the next decade. I am your host, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, a former dental assistant, dental hygienist, and now dentist. I'm very pleased to introduce you today to Dr. Maxine Feinberg. Dr. Feinberg graduated from NYU College of Arts and Sciences in 1977 and NYU's College of Dentistry in 1980. She returned to NYU after her residency in anesthesiology and working as a general dentist and treating patients confined in nursing homes to complete her certificate in periodontics in 1984. She's the past president of the New Jersey Dental Association and the New Jersey State Board of Dentistry, where she served for nine years. She's been a delegate in both the ADA and New Jersey Dental Association House of Delegates. She initiated the New Jersey Give Kids a Smile campaign for 2002-2003, and she remains active in both her component and dental society and the New Jersey Dental Association. In 2013, she was elected president-elect of the American Dental Association. She served four years as the fourth district trustee of the American Dental Association. Dr. Feinberg lives in Westfield, New Jersey with her husband, John Wynn. She's the proud mother of two daughters, Haley and Rebecca Wynn. It is now my pleasure to bring you to my interview with Dr. Maxine Feinberg. Maxine, I can't tell you how excited I am to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your practice to be with us. It's really awesome to have a chance to be able to talk to somebody who's been through so many leadership positions in, in their career. And I know you have a lot to share with the audience. So without any further ado, I'd love it if you would just start by telling us a little bit about your journey in dentistry, where you've been, and eventually we'll get to some questions. Well, you know, I tell people, I think my journey really started as a frightened three-and-a-half-year-old who had baby bottle syndrome and whose mother took them to the dentist who happened to be an extremely patient and kind and talented dentist who put up with this really ill-behaved, screaming three-and-a-half-year-old who didn't want to be in his chair. And someday when we have more time, I'll tell you the story about how I suspected something was up, you know, because my mother told me I had to go with her to the dentist after lunch. I told her I wanted to stay home with my older brother. And she said, no, no, you'll come with me. So I hid in the hedges. And uh, she then sent my older brother out to find me. And he may not have, but he, we had this shortcut through our, our hedges and he, like literally ran right into me and he was 10 years older. He's 10 years older than I am. So he grabbed me and the next thing you knew, I was on my way to the dentist and I was just petrified. And I learned a really important lesson from that. I had no knowledge of what going to the dentist was about, but I read my mother very well and she was extremely nervous about it. And um, I said, I invented evening hours because I had extreme lung capacity and I was frightening everybody in the waiting room. So the dentist actually said to my mother, and I remember this well, um, Mrs. Feinberg, why don't you come back, you know, Wednesday evening and, you know, bring Maxine's father too. Like, I guess he figured he needed reinforcements. And I needed so much dental work. His son eventually took over the practice, and when he was looking at my chart, the first time I went to the son, 
he said to his assistant, I think you gave me the wrong chart. So I said to him, well, why do you, th I think I'm the only Maxine Feinberg in town. I said, why would you think it's the wrong chart? He goes, it's so thick and you're only like, you know, 15. And I said, oh no, I've been coming here a long time. And, and he encouraged me to consider dentistry. So, um, oh, isn't that nice? It was a good story because I wound up becoming an, an amazing patient and, you know, biting, kicking, all of those things never, he never lost his temper or his patience. And he had this great receptionist slash assistant slash she did everything in the office. And she had this little wooden treasure box with, um, with little plastic charms and she would bribe me with them. She'd say, look, I'm going to give you two charms now if you promise to behave yourself. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And then if you're, if you're really good, I might let you have another charm on the way out. And it was amazing. It was an early form of behavioral modification and uh, it worked out very well for me. What can I say? That's awesome. So he inspired you to go to dental school, which is a great thing because, you know, obviously a guy in telling a young woman to go to dental school, we know that that's, that wasn't always the case for many of our colleagues older than maybe you and I. Let me I. tell you, he'd be close to a hundred now. It, he'd probably be over a hundred now because he was around my mother's age. And um, he was ahead of, ahead of himself because in high school, he would say to me, you should go to dental school. And um, so he was really a very, very lovely individual. And I'm glad that, you know, he touched me in so many ways in, in my formative years. Mm. So you went to dental school. Where did you go to school? I actually went to NYU. I, I was a lifer. I, you know, they had a program in high school where I went after my junior year in high school. I didn't have a diploma. I didn't get a diploma until after my freshman year. And I just stayed. I did my undergraduate, my dental, and my perio all at NYU. So I was an NYU lifer. And then I taught there for a few years. So Excellent. Excellent. So where did you go from NYU? Where did, did you set up practice? It's interesting. You know, I worked for a few years with one of my professors who, who also was a great mentor to me. And then at some point when the time came and I had to decide whether to go into partnership with them because he had a younger partner or open my own practice. And, you know, if I would have spent the next 50 years with Milt, I probably would have stayed, but I realized he was getting ready to retire. And so I came, I, that was in New York. Their practice was in Manhattan and in one of the boroughs. I decided I wanted to open my own practice and I didn't want to feel as though I had in any way betrayed him. So rather than set up my practice in New York, I came back to New Jersey and opened a practice in the town I grew up in. Initially, that's where I started. Oh my gosh, that's great. That's great. And, and it must have worked out well because everybody knew who you were. And right. And, you know, it's a pretty big city, but it's a really small town in many ways. And my husband still laughs because I eventually moved my practice about 10 minutes away to the town next to it. And, um, you know, when he calls my office at the end of the day, if they say it's a new patient, he says, are they from Elizabeth? Because if they're from my hometown, chances are I'm going to be running late because we all know each other. And um, it was just a great, great place to grow up. And I'm still close with people I went to kindergarten with. So, you know, 
Oh my goodness. You know, it's a, a city of a hundred thousand, over a hundred thousand, but um, there was just something about it that gave it a small town sort of feel to it. That's amazing. Not too many people can say that they have been friends with people since kindergarten. I think that's incredible. And it's funny because Facebook has really assisted us because people live all over the world. And, um, and yet we have a junior high school. See, I had another very unusual thing. I, I went to an all-girls public high school, which was one of the reasons I wanted to leave early. It, they weren't investing money in um, our high school. The money and the faculty were being invested in the boys' high school. And this, you know, this goes back to you know, the way things were in the 50s and 60s and the early 70s when I was in high school. So, like, for example, I had to... I wanted to take Latin four and I had to go to the boys high school to take it. So they had to give me a period to walk because it was a you know 20 minute walk from the boys high school to my high school. And that's when I knew it was time you know, to get out. So the last time we were in a co-ed education, we were in you know junior high school, what they refer to as middle school now. And every few years we get together a group of us who went to middle school together and it's as though, you know, and, and let me tell you, it's a really interesting group because they're people of all races, nationalities, uh, religions, and we've all managed to stay friends all these years. One of my good friends from kindergarten um, is a nun now, you know, um, Alice, and um, she, she'll come to the reunions. It's just a really remarkable group of people who, whose company I enjoy. And, you know, you'll have people who are who didn't go to college, people who um, became dentists, physicians, lawyers, successful business people. And it doesn't matter. We're all still friends um, and we all really care about each other. So it's, it's, a, it's a nice group of people. That's amazing. That's a great story. So from your private practice, and you still have the same practice today, I, I'm assuming. Yes. What got you interested in organized dentistry? How did you become involved in, you know, attain the leadership position of the ADA? Well, you know, I think there are a couple of things. I had great mentors. My first boss, who was my professor, was very involved in organized dentistry and immediately helped me get involved. And so when I moved back to New Jersey, I immediately wanted to get involved, you know, locally. And I did. And I tell people I was the oral cancer chairperson for nine years. I was the secretary for five years. I was in a position I didn't think they're ever going to let me leave. And in fact, even after I left, I wound up still doing much of the secretarial stuff because I wanted it done the right way. And, you know, I think dentists are like this. Sometimes we think, you know, if we want it done the right way, we're better off doing it ourselves. So I started that way. And I always tell people there, there hasn't been a job in organized dentistry that I haven't learned from, you know, and then I moved up the chairs in my local component and I started out as the alternate trustee to the New Jersey Dental Association, a position I held for seven years before I guess they felt I was ready to take over as the trustee. And from there, um, at some point, it had dawned on me, there had never been a woman president of our state association at that point. And there was talk of the fact that there was a need for a woman president. And what bothered me about it was it was clearly going to be um, an insincere gesture and, you know, sort of pandering. And I thought, wait a minute, 
if there's going to be a first, it's going to be me because I've put my time in and I've worked really hard. I had been chairman of the dental, I had been on the dental education committee. I had been chairman of dental health. You know, I had been involved. Um, I had been on the task force for healthcare reform during the Clinton administration. I was on the nitrous oxide task force. You know, I had done it all and I thought, okay, we're not going to let them make a mockery of this and pick somebody that, you know, they sort of thought was sanitized enough to be the president. And over the years, I had made a lot of friends and people agreed with me, people on the board. So I got the support I needed and I decided to run for president. And I was glad I did because um, I thought it was an important milestone in our history in New Jersey. And once again, I didn't want people to ever be able to say, oh, they just gave her that, you know, because they wanted a woman dentist. I knew I could easily defend the fact that I had earned the right to be there. Right. So I thought it was really important because it, otherwise to me, it was becoming a mockery. And I, I just really was offended by it, to be honest with you. So that's how it started. And then you know, I eventually became involved as a delegate to the American Dental Association. And um, I made a lot of friends in, you know, I'm from a very unusual district. You're from a multi-state district, but I'm in a multi-state district that includes Puerto Rico, the Federal Dental Services, um, Maryland, Delaware, District of Columbia, and the Virgin Islands. So it's it's a very unique district and it's sort of like a little microcosm of the ADA, I always like to say. And I was able to, you know, meet a lot of people and people felt that, you know, people encouraged me to run for trustee eventually. And I did that and I was glad I did that. And then um, I thought, you know, why can't I be president of the ADA? I felt at the time with the people who were running, I really, it was really a lot of very important issues, student debt. I'd been the, you know, chairman of the student debt task force. You know, we were having a lot of issues and I thought, you know, I really felt it was time to have another woman at the top of the ADA because at that point, 50% of the classes in most schools were women. And, you know, the way I see it, if people don't feel comfortable, they don't see themselves represented in the hierarchy, they're not going to want to eventually get involved and because they, they don't think that there'll be a place for them. And um, so I made it a point of visiting as many dental schools as I could. You know, I took a real interest in, in the students' issues um, on licensure and things that I was familiar with. And I felt that it was just important that young women see that there is a place for them in organized dentistry. You know, I find it interesting because you made the comment and we're close to 60% now. I don't know if you know that for entering classes this year, 60% female. And still we're struggling at the ADA level with the number of women that are sitting on the, the podium and on that board. So, you know, any feedback as to why we're still struggling with accomplishing a better mix or at least a, a balance of, of female representation and even diverse re representation? I think that both should be taken hand in hand because I think that there's, there's still some pushing back on, on, you know, the diversity side. Although I think that the ADA is certainly doing a great job 
trying to rectify that. Yeah, trying, but the problem is, I think that there are a lot of people who think that it's just going to organically change on its own. And I just don't believe that. I believe that, you know, and what I've tried to do is encourage other women to get involved in all levels of organized dentistry. And I've tried to help them negotiate and avoid some of the minefields that I may have stepped on along the way, because ultimately I don't think it's going to correct itself organically. And the reason I say that is when I was president of NJDA, that was back in like 2002, 2003, there were a large number of women state presidents. And I thought, oh, this is amazing. Um, Billy Sue was in my president, president elect's class. She came after Jean Nicolette, who was president of Ohio. So Ohio had two women back to back. Back then, we had people from Puerto Rico, Tennessee. I mean, just all over, you know, the country. There, there were. It was a just a really large group, and so I was really excited about. It. And I think we all were. We thought, oh, this is just great. And we would get together, this group of women, like if we were at the president president elect conference, in those days they had both a president president elect joint conference and then a president's conference. So we, we'd go out to dinner and, you know, we became fast friends. And I think we all thought that this was just great things were, and then that's just not what happened. I think that, you know, politics being what it is and politics, even at the ADA level is very competitive. There are just so few positions um, and people think that, you know, if they've been around long enough, they deserve to have their positions and that's not necessarily so. And this is why I think that in fact, it's all about mentoring and encouraging and looking for talent, seeking it out um, and finding a place for them at the table because um, the younger women aren't willing to wait, you know, 30 years to, to make it to the pinnacle. They want they want to get involved and be involved. They don't want to be marginalized early on in their career. So I think it's going to take a little bit of time for us to um, accept the fact that it isn't going to be fixed on its own by sheer numbers. Quite the contrary. I believe that if we don't go out there and actively seek and actively um, market ourselves, shall I say, to these young women, um, the profession is going to be in a terrible situation in 10 years when the older males are sort of on the way out. And if we don't get new leadership coming from that 50 to 60% of the new students, you know, that will be graduating, I think we're going to have to ask ourselves who's going to lead the profession, if not us. Right. Right. You know, I, I want to reassure you that the young women that are in dental school right now are seeing the same thing about our faculty uh, ratio also. There just isn't that many women in leadership roles in academia, and it's a struggle, right? Yeah, I think it's 17%. 17% of the deans are women. And, and let's be honest, there are a lot of talented women in academia, too. It's, there's still this bias that we have to work through, you know, um, and a lot of our colleagues don't like to hear that, but I still believe it to be the case. And I think that once again, we're going to need to, you know, one of the people I really admired was Dean um, D. Walter Cohn. And I'll tell you why. He was so ahead of his time. He started that Elan program for women in academia to teach them, you know, to give them the skills so that at least 
they'd have the confidence, which I think a lot of people lacked, to go into positions in high levels of academia. And I admired him because, you know, many of the deans today went through that program and it was saying that he understood as a person who had been the dean of a dental school, a medical school, that we have to encourage women and help to facilitate their rise in whether it be dental politics or, or academia. And he was right. And um, he was just ahead of, you know, just ahead of his time, I think, you know. So you hit on something that I, I want to uh, go into a little bit further. So one of the things that I observe in a lot of my female students is the lack of confidence in their ability. And one of the you know reasons why this podcast started was to help to inspire our younger colleagues and you know any women that are in the profession that we can do more than what we think that we can. And so thinking back on your career, do you remember a time when you finally said, oh my gosh, I can, I can do this? Or have you always been fairly confident in your ability to perform, to be good at, at what you do? Well, you know, I'll tell you a funny thing. I think it took me a lot longer to feel that confidence in terms of my dentistry than it did, you know, being able to speak out and, and talk up. You know, you ask a question, like, is there something, you know, that people would like to know about me that they might not? I, I grew up in a family where my brother is an attorney. I had uncles. My cousins are all attorneys. And they wanted me to go to law school. And I just didn't want to follow down that path for, for a lot of reasons. Um, one, I really love the sciences. And two, my family is very competitive. And there was just no way I was going to spend my life feeling that I had to um, compete with my older cousins and my brother, my uncles, in terms of their accomplishments. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to be compared to anybody else. So I, I remember my brother taking me on a dental, he drove to New York City to take me to a dental school interview. And he lived in Wilmington, but he drove from Wilmington to New York. And we were in the Holland Tunnel going back into Manhattan. And he said to me, Maxine, you still have two weeks to register for the LSATs. So I said, Bob, I'm not registering for the LSATs. I'm going to dental school interviews. I'm going to dental school. But, you know, I think growing up in that environment where being the youngest cousin, um, being the only girl, they made me a little tougher, you know, and they, you know, if I, if we were, we would have really intense discussions at, at the dinner table. And, um, you know, I remember once my cousin Bob, who was Warren Burger's clerk at the Supreme Court, and this goes back to the early 70s, something political, and we were having this really heated debate. And then when it was over, I got really frustrated. And I, I said, you know, Bob, you're just such a fascist. I can't believe it. Like, I, I don't know where you came from. And he looked at me, he goes, wait a minute. I didn't say I didn't agree with you. So I said, well, what was this whole argument about? He said, it wasn't an argument. I'm trying to teach you, Maxine, that you can't say things unless you can back them up. So, you know, I learned and, and like I was the president of our high school debating club. So I learned early on that if I had an opinion, as long as I could back it up, I wasn't afraid to, to speak up. So I was very lucky. You know, I tell people that the first feminist I met was my uncle Harry, 
who told me not only did he want me to be a lawyer, he wanted me to be the first judge, the first female judge in Union County, which is the county I still live and practice in. You know, so I was very fortunate because I grew up in an environment that encouraged me to succeed at whatever I chose to pursue. And, and my uncle once said the funniest thing to me. He said, you know, I expect more from you than I expect from the boys. He said, because frankly, you're smarter than they are. So I was like, and I, I felt like I had to live up to that, you know. So I always felt that, you know, I'm not afraid to speak up if I have an opinion, if I have the facts, and I always make sure to this day that I do my homework and I believe, you know, like dentistry is about science. You know, if you can back up your argument, you should have a voice at the table. So I was very lucky. Now, when it came to dentistry, it took it just took me time to realize that I, I had the skills, the knowledge to make decisions and not to second guess myself. You know, one of the ways I got there was I have a great network of friends and colleagues. And I tell people, I'm never afraid to ask for advice. You know, if I'm not sure about how to proceed, I'll say to the patient, you know, I want to look this over. I want to discuss this with my colleagues and you'll come back and we'll discuss where we're going to go. And that's one of my bits of advice. Put together a great network of people who you trust both in terms of their friendship, but also in terms of their knowledge and skills and use it. And that's the thing that I think people who don't get involved in organized dentistry miss out on. You know, when we go to our monthly meetings, when we go, very often people would like bring cases with them. People would discuss things. And as I say, to this day, I had a case recently where I thought I, I had a vision for where I wanted this case to go. And it was a young prosthodontist. And I said to him, well, let's get together for lunch, albeit with face masks. And then we socially distanced while we were eating. But we came up with a plan and the patient, I, and we followed through on the plan and patient was in uh, yesterday. And she said to me, I can't tell you how happy I am with the outcome. She had really uneven gingival levels. Like, and, you know, somebody else had suggested they were just going to put veneers in without addressing, you know, the discrepancy. It wouldn't have been a good outcome because she has a big, beautiful smile. And now even in temp, she's like just thrilled. And he, the way we worked together, he gave me a, you know, like a 3D model to put in her mouth. So I was able to give him what he wanted with each tooth in terms of repositioning the gingiva and everything. And so, like I say, he's younger than I am, but I'm willing to sit down and say, how can we do the best for our patient? And that's helped me gain confidence over the years, you know, learning that, you know, I have the skills to, to give the patients what they need and I care about their well-being and their outcomes. And um, you should never, you know, I'm 64 years old. I'm still willing to ask for advice. Absolutely. I, I don't think we ever stop learning, do we? And I think that's the whole part of our profession. It's changing moment by moment sometimes, it seems like. And especially, you know, subsequent to COVID-19, everything the, that we learned is out the door, you know. And I think every single week that we had something finally decided at the school, 
we had to go back and change it because we had new information. So, yeah, I think that we as dentists are constantly learning and constantly staying on top of, of what's new and what's going on. Artificial intelligence, I think it's going to turn our, our whole industry upside down. I really do. I think that it, there's going to be information overload at some point. But I'm willing to embrace it because if I were practicing the way I with my knowledge base and my skills and um, the way I did when I finished dental school in 1980, I think I would just hate it. I have tried to keep up with all of the technology. You know, I've had a um, comb beam machine for over 10 years. I'm on my second machine. I've tried to keep up with the science. And so I, th I think that I always think of Sig Stahl was the chairman of the Perio department when I was at NYU, and he was the academic dean when I was an undergraduate dental student as well. And I love this man because I was class president even then, and I drove this guy nuts. And he still accepted me into his Perio program and, with open arms, and we respected each other. But he said something to me in my second year of my Perio program. We were talking in the hallway, and something came up, and he goes, Maxine. If the day comes where you think that you know everything and there's nothing left to learn, it's time for you to retire. Remember that. And I have because, you know, I have just, it's been an evolution. It's the only way to describe it. The way I practice has been an evolution. You know, I tell people, um, I did a procedure on that woman, you know, 30 years earlier, I might've done a different procedure that wasn't really as good. So, you know, I try to keep up with the technology. I try to keep up with the science. And I just feel like you can always be a better you, you know. Um, and I keep reminding myself that, you know, I still have a lot to learn. And so I guess I'm not ready to retire just yet because I'm still learning every day. And um, what's your favorite way to get your information? Well, you know, I hate to say this, but I'm, you know, I, as much as I spent a lot of time on web, you know, on Zoom programs and webinars during COVID, because I want to keep my, you know, I didn't want to like just let my brain go to waste. I still like going to, to lectures and convening with my colleagues and talking to them. You know, I'll give you an example. I was at a lecture, a hands-on lecture last year from our State Perio Association and somebody mentioned some technology I hadn't heard of. I was like, what? So immediately I went back to the office, went online, looked it up, and actually invested in, in, in purchasing this material that I think, once again, made me better at what I did. So I do like having that interaction because I think sometimes when you're at, on Zoom or a webinar, questions are not necessarily not all the questions are being asked and um i learn a lot from other people's questions and answers so i still like doing that but on the other hand i do read a lot i like to go online and um, look things up and i actually like watching some of those crazy youtube videos on how to use certain things and i've learned a lot from them so um you can definitely teach an old dog new tricks what can i say you know? <laughs> that's great so going back to your time again as ada president you and carol had a great connection i felt and you guys were just two dynamos now we haven't seen a female president since then 
So, you know, what kind of advice can you give to our colleagues out there that might be pursuing that? You know, we really need to start focusing, I think, on developing some women so that they can take those roles on. Well, you know, I tell people, follow your heart. If you, if you believe that you have something to offer, go for it and don't be intimidated. You know, um, there were people who said, oh, that I could never win that election. And um, one person, and, and this to me was like an epiphany. I was at one state, I won't say what state, there were all sorts of like technical difficulties. And in spite of it, I was the one person who was able to answer the questions that were asked. There wasn't a question that I, I and other people stumbled. Like the microphone wasn't working when one person spoke. And even though I only heard one out of every five words, I understood the question and was able to answer it. The other people weren't. The last person, they wrote down the question and gave it to him. And, and even then, I didn't think they did a good job answering it. But when it was over, I heard from one of my friends that somebody had said, well, Maxine's clearly the smartest candidate and she knows the information. But does she look presidential? Ugh. And I found that so offensive. So, and I thought the person who said it, you know, I thought, really, do you look presidential? Like I'm thinking to myself, you must have a distorted self-image too. Yeah. So now whenever I speak to women dentists, I tell them to go home and look in the mirror and smile and say, I look presidential because I believe that we get to define what's presidential. Um, the fact that, you know, the implication was I didn't have a Brooks Brothers suit on or a, or a tailored, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't cut from the same mold as some of the other people, but I basically felt, you know, that was a turning point. And after that, that's when I thought, you know what, I need to go out and tell women that they are presidential and that if they feel that they're going to bring something to the table, they should run because, you see, I have the utmost faith in our House of Delegates. You know, I tell people, my first year on the board, uh, one of the trustees said to me, Maxine, you have to stop thinking like a delegate. And they said it almost like an insult. And I said to them, well, you know, I have to be honest with you. I represent those delegates. And um, as long as I still have a feeling that I understand what is important to them, I'm not going to stop thinking like that because ultimately they're closer to the rank and file um, member than, than you are as a trustee. And while as a trustee, you may have more information, you need to remember who you're representing. So my other advice to people is make friends because I made a lot of friends in the House of Delegates. And, um, and I think in the end, people trusted me to deliver what I promised to deliver. So um, my advice is um, make friends. Don't be afraid. Don't feel intimidated. Your A game is as good as anybody else's A game. So, you know, go for it. And don't be discouraged because if I allowed people to discourage me, I wouldn't have run either. And um, I just, you know, somebody said to me, you know, it's going to be an uphill battle. I said, that's okay. You know, I'm Avis. Let the other guys be Hertz, you know, I'm, and look where Hertz is now. So, you know, in the end, you can do it. You just need to know what you're 
what you're speaking of, do your homework. And just like when I was in dental school, I always felt that the women in my class had to work a little harder because, you know, as um, Claire Booth Luce said, we felt that if one of us failed, they wouldn't say that that individual failed. They would have said the women failed because my class was the first large class of women they had accepted into the dental school. So we always felt like we were working hard. I was in a group in dental materials. I was the only woman in the, in the group. And um, I was always like a little bit ahead and we had a brand new manual. We had a new chairman of dental materials and the instructions were always wrong. Like they'd say, put two inches of this and two inches of that, and it wouldn't be enough to get an impression. Or mix this and this, well, it would be hard by the time you know. So I'd always be the first one to say, wait a minute, this isn't the right proportion, you know? And the instructor was an older guy who smoked cigars in the, you know, in the, in the lab. Uh, it shows you how times have changed. And he once said to me, I'd never go to a lady dentist. So I thought, oh, I'm just in like the worst place here. And he never showed you your grades. So I'm thinking, I must be failing. He's never going to a lady dentist. Um, so I wound up being put on a committee. And I made a comment about that, you know. And the next day in Dental Materials Lab, he came up to me. His name was Tony. He said, he took the cigar out of his mouth and he said, Maxine, you're my best student. He said, I don't know why you think I don't like you. I said, well, you said you, he goes, I was just joking. And that was an important lesson too, because I realized that I couldn't take myself that seriously, that, you know, you needed to have a sense of humor and you couldn't be offended by every comment that was made, you know, and that really opened my eyes up and he showed me my grades and sure enough, I mean, I had, he was giving me great grades and everything. So I realized that you need to take it with a grain of salt sometimes also and know when to ignore it. But it, it was an experience. That's good, a learning lesson. Have there been any major obstacles that you've overcome in your career that you want to chat about? Well, you know, I'll tell you when I first opened as a female specialist, and this shows you how naive I was. I didn't think there would be a problem. I just thought, I'm going to go open my practice. They're going to want a periodontist. And well, I found out at that time, it was like a lot of times I'd say, oh, do you want to go out to lunch? And they'd go, oh, no, that's okay. They felt uncomfortable a little bit going out to lunch with me. And then when they found out I was married and whatever, it was, you know, it was a little easier as we became friends, you know, as I became friends with them and their spouses, um, it got a little easier. But there was one guy who was referring a lot of patients to me, and I couldn't understand it. I would send these nice referral cards that I had made, and the patient would never come in with one of those referral cards. It would always be something written on the back of one of his business cards. And I, and I actually knew this guy my whole life because he was my brother's fraternity brother in college. So um, I called him one day and I said, Steve, why don't you ever use my referral cards? He goes, oh, I was hoping we weren't going to have to have this conversation. He said, you know, some of my patients are older. And when I tell them, when I started to give them your card initially and they saw that you were a woman, they didn't want to go to you. And I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, so I just write down Dr. Feinberg. And then when they get to your office and they meet you, they love you and they're glad to be with you. But it avoids the need to have to tell them that you're 
uh, a woman dentist before they get there. And I, like my jaw dropped because I guess it had never dawned on me that there might be that prejudice out there. But now, 30 something years later, I have people come in and say to me, you know, somebody was in the other day and they said they needed a new dentist. So I gave them the name of a dentist who happened to be a male dentist. And they said, you know, I'd really prefer to go to a woman. So I said, you know, we've come a long way. I said, that's not a problem. I'll find, uh, I have a number of great colleagues, females that aren't far from where you live that I think you'll get along with. So I feel like we've come full circle, but in the beginning, that was a bit of an obstacle. Sure. Oh my goodness. Who in dentistry inspires you today? You know, truthfully, it's the students. They have such energy and many of them are so altruistic and they're so smart. You know, they're just so smart. And so they keep me on my A game because, um, you know, I want to make sure that we hand over. A and, and I think the thing that motivates me now is ensuring, you know, the sanctity of the patient doctor relationship, ensuring that the profession we hand over to them is still respected, still held in high esteem in their communities, and that if they choose to go into private practice, um, that they know that there's, there's still room for private practice, that model still exists. There's room in corporate if that's where they choose. Yeah, there's room in academia that they need to figure out what it is that's going to make them happy and then go for it because they can be successful in whatever, you know, environment they choose to operate out of. So um, they're my inspiration. Yeah. I, you know, I think that there's so much angst about what the future holds for our students, but I, I agree with you 100%. I think that this is a minor bump in the road. It has affected everyone. It doesn't have any lines of, of profession versus you know, one profession versus another. So, you know, we're all in this together. And I think that we are going to get through this. Uh, we may be practicing dentistry differently, but I think it's going to be better. I think that the amount of respect that we have, one of the safest places you can be right now is in a dental office. We take it extremely seriously, and I talk about it all the time to patients. I well, I agreed to do a TV pro, you know, a TV interview from my office and a newspaper interview early on when we first started reopening. And I'll tell you an interesting thing: a woman who hadn't been to a dentist in probably twenty years um, came in and made an appointment, and she said. I heard what you said. You said that you worried that people would be afraid to go and that their oral health would suffer and that you didn't want that. You wanted people to feel secure, she said. And it was like you were speaking to me. And so I decided to make an appointment and come in because I felt secure. And I almost started to cry, to be honest with you, because that was the message I wanted to get through. And what I said in that interview, and I think the thing that's given me and some of my, you know, contemporaries a heads up on this, when I got out of dental school, I didn't wear gloves. We didn't wear gloves. I didn't either. When I was in hygiene school. Um, we didn't. We wiped down the hand pieces with alcohol. Mm -hmm. I remember those days. And then the AIDS epidemic occurred. And it, it turned my life upside down. And at first I was like, how am I going to get used to doing surgery with gloves on? And 
you know, I had a rash from the powder and the latex, and so I had to go to vinyl. Then the vinyl made me sweat, and then I found hypoallergenic. Late, but the point was, I did what I had to do to make my patients feel secure. I saw too many people coming to me five or ten years into the epidemic that hadn't been to a dentist because they were so afraid. And I didn't want this to happen during this pandemic. I wanted people to feel secure. So once again, I did what dentists do. I, I studied what I had to do to make my office the safest place possible. I listened to the COCA calls from the CDC. I listened to their engineer speak on air handling. I changed the way we work our thermostat. We're always going on fan. It's not on auto anymore. I put an HV light into the ductwork. I did whatever it took so that I knew that my staff, my family, and my patients would feel secure coming. And I was comfortable doing that because I had to change, you know, 25, 30 years earlier to adapt to a different practice model. Yeah. So, you know, that's the beauty of dentistry. I think that, um, we are able to adapt. And I had friends that called me, they were afraid to open their offices up again. And I said to them, you have survived worse than this. You will survive this. You can do it. You can't let fear drive you. You know, we're science-based. Let's find the science. And granted, it was changing weekly. You know, one week I listened to the Coca-Cola and they said I had to wait 15 or 20 minutes before I clean the operatory. One week later, they said I didn't have to wait. Now, the truth be told, I questioned in my own head the logic of that 15-minute wait, but I was going to follow it. So a week later, I came back in. I said to my staff, we don't have to wait anymore. We can go right in and clean. And I don't know why people were getting angry. I wasn't getting angry because science evolves with knowledge. And so we have to evolve with knowledge and we have to adapt. And we did. And I go into the office now. And let me tell you, it's tiring at the end of the day with all the extra gear on. But it's gotten so much easier from May 26 when I reopened. You know, and the other thing it taught me, I can do some teledentistry. When we weren't allowed to see anybody but, you know, really clear emergencies. And people were calling. I kept my, I kept my front desk people working and they would field the calls. And if they weren't sure whether it was really an emergency, I'd call the patient, I'd say, can you send me a picture? And they would, and I'd assess whether I felt I had to come in and see them or not. And again, if you had told me that 30 years ago, I would have left and said, oh yeah, and Dick Tracy has a two-way wrist radio, because <laughs> when I was a kid, I, I never thought we'd actually have you know, cell phones that have better optics than the cameras I used to own. And um, so you go with the flow. And if not, you know, you're just going to be very unhappy. And I think it's important to maintain your mental health and say, you know, this, this will get better. And we don't know when, but we're going to do what we have to do. And I think dentistry was, is a great model for other industries, you know, I keep talking to my patients that are teachers who are afraid to go back to school. And I tell them the thing that bothers me as a taxpayer is they're not investing in the infrastructure to make it a safe learning environment. Instead of debating whether they're going to go back part-time, full-time, if it's going to be virtual, if it's not going to be virtual, 
every day in the newspaper, there's something new about what the state of New Jersey is doing. I'm thinking, what is wrong with these people? Spend my tax dollars putting in proper air filtration systems, put UV lighting in where, it, where you need to, hire more teachers if you have to, put up portable classrooms, invest in the infrastructure because COVID's not going away. I think it's going to be much like the flu. You know, we'll get a vaccine. We may need to get a new vaccine every year, but you still need to invest in the infrastructure to make a secure learning environment for the kids. And I don't care if it's a dental school or an elementary school or a high school, you know, there are brilliant people out there that have solutions. So let's, let's go and, and solve the problem instead of putting a Band-Aid on, which is what I think they're doing right now. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, you brought up a really, really good point that I'd like to just bring back to the forefront. One of the things that I noticed throughout all of this is that primarily the fear that people were feeling was because they didn't educate themselves enough. They didn't do the reading. They didn't look at the database and, and get the knowledge that they needed in order to get rid, allay those fears. So I think that that was a really valuable lesson for me to learn, for me to observe throughout all of this is that when you do feel fear, you have to educate yourself and you have to share that education with everybody you know, because if they're not going to do the work, we have the responsibility of, of making sure that everybody around us does have what we know. It's funny you would say that because whenever I'd find an article or something that I felt really elucidated, you know, you know, the topics that people were discussing, I would post them on various, you know, my own page, but also like, you know, some of these COVID discussion groups and what have you, because once again, I felt that there were certain elements in the community that were fear-mongering, to be honest with you. And um, it was really disturbing to me um, and putting out manifestos that weren't based on science, which I found really offensive. And they were trying to instill fear in the people who work in my dental office, which really disturbed me considerably. So I brought my group together and, you know, we socially distanced and everything. And we went through all of the things that I was going to do to protect them. And I explained the science to them. You know, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to handle it. You know, and I showed them because I had been buying things like thermometers sneeze guards, you know, all of these things. Um, I showed them where I put, where the guy installed the UV light. Um, I bought UV wands to, you know, disinfect, you know, surfaces that were hard to get to. I brought, I couldn't get at the time a fogger because the company that made the foggers basically sent a letter to the dentist saying, look, I've gotten 6,000 questions about the foggers and I can't sell them to you now because I have to sell them to the hospitals, the schools, you know, what have you. And he said to buy this Ryobi machine that is a mister. So I immediately bought that. I found the right chemicals that dried quickly, but were approved. And once they saw what I had done, they didn't have, except for one employee, the rest of them felt very confident coming back to work because I didn't want people to be uncomfortable. Plus, I wanted them to convey that same message to my patients. If they didn't buy in and believe what I was telling them, they weren't going to be good ambassadors. 
And what's happened is our book is filled. I mean, you know, because we have the backlog now on hygiene and we've had people come in and say, I'm so glad to be here. And I always laugh when they tell me that. I go, well, that's a first in a dental office. They go, oh no, it's like the first time I've been out of my house in you know, four months. And I'll go, well, I'm glad that you honored us by coming here. You know, So I think you're 100% right. And um, I think that it's important. You know, at first, look, I'm 64. I'm, I'm in a high risk, quote unquote, group. And I could have been afraid, but I knew that the science would save me. And, and what I try to tell people is I am filtering out before they even get to my front door, those people who might present a risk. Um, there was a patient who told us they, they, they just got back from, they'd been out of the country for months and they technically had an appointment scheduled for this Thursday. I said, nope, they're going to have this, they're going to have to um, quarantine for 14 days before we can bring them in. Um, even though they were asymptomatic you know, rules are rules. We have to stick to them. Another patient had gone to Florida, came back. Their appointment was going to be like 10 days. I was like, nope, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait. Um, we'll reschedule you. Make sure that you're, you know, okay. You need to self-quarantine for 14 days before I see you. So in the end, I think that's the really important thing that, that we need to always convey that it's important that we base our decisions and base our actions on the science that's currently available to us. And if you do that, you know, I have no qualms going in. I, I'm not worried at all. And I think that's, you're hundred percent right. Any last piece of advice that you want to share with the audience? Things that you've learned along the way that that might be really good nuggets for people to hear? I think it's important for you to find good mentors. You know, people think you, you have a mentor. It's just not true. In your life and in, in the different aspects of your life, you're going to want to have many good mentors. And you shouldn't be afraid to ask because people, you know, I find that people are complimented by the fact that you might want them to, you know, either your mentor or, and I wouldn't even necessarily say you have to call them and say, Hey, could you be my mentor? But start by, you know, I tell the story that I had a mentor in my New Jersey dental association, who is one of my closest and dearest friends. And when I was in the boardroom, sometimes like my gut would be telling me that I didn't like the way things were moving. And sometimes I would ask to postpone my vote and wait to hear what this person had to say because there isn't a self-serving bone in this man's body. He could have been president of our state association. He didn't want to, but he's held every other office. He does things for organized dentistry beyond what most people would do. And I'd always wait to you know, see what he had to say. And very often it would influence the way I would vote because he was just such a sensible person. And because he had no other aspirations, he always did the right thing, always. And so I tell people, find mentors like that, people who, who you respect and who you can call and ask advice. Because once again, I go back to the fact that it, it doesn't make you less um, of a dentist or a person when you ask people for advice. If anything, it makes you a better person. So find those people you respect, ask for their advice, and 
don't be afraid to pick up a phone because people will always usually be glad to speak with you. So true. So very true. Maxine, I can't tell you how wonderful this conversation has been. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your insight and knowledge and inspiration for everyone out there. So thank you so much for everything. Mary Jane, thank you for asking me. I was honored to be asked. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Women in Dentistry podcast with Dr. MJ Hanlon. If you like our show and want to know more about us, check out our website, thewomenindentistry.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us for our next episode as we bring you another amazing woman leading the way for the next generation.